This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Kim Wilson will also be joining us virtually, just um, she was unable to join us um, in person. 
and they will both be with us for 45 minutes. And during that time, I hope we'll have kind of the bulk of our, uh, our discussion. Um, after they depart, we'll then also have a kind of 15, around 15 minute recording with two of our panelists who are also imprisoned in Pennsylvania, um, Sophia and Brian. Um, and we'll kind of hear their pre-recorded thoughts um, on prison censorship. So then the panelists who are with us here today, Jess and Salim, will share closing reflections and it will end. So we apologize that kind of as a result of this sort of hybrid format, there's not really going to be time for substantive discussion or Q&A, so really apologize about that, but definitely encourage folks to stick around, chat if you have additional questions um, for the panelists, certainly, and just thank you in advance for your patience as we sort of manage all of the moving pieces of this. Hopefully not that we don't have any major issues. Um, okay, so next I'm just going to go and introduce everyone up front before we get into the discussion. So first, I'm just going in alphabetical order. We have Bryant Arroyo, um, who you'll hear from later. He is currently imprisoned at SCI Cole Township. He is, according to friend and mentor Mamiya Abu-Jamal, the world's first jailhouse environmentalist, a title he earned after successfully organizing his fellow prisoners against the construction of a $400 million coal gasification plant that was slated to be built 300 feet from SEI Frackville. And this plant would have um, poisoned the environment around the prison as well as the nearby community. So because of his fearless activism, the project was actually ultimately scrapped. Um, sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for a crime that he did not commit. Arroyo has since fought tirelessly for the betterment of himself and his fellow prisoners. He's currently fighting against the for-profit privatization of the prison mail system, which we'll talk about more today, um, encouraging his fellow prisoners to boycott the mail service entirely since the 2018 implementation of these draconian new policies in which um, prisoner mail is sent to a for-profit third party where it is opened, photocopied, and then stored on private servers. Next, we have Robert Salim Holbrook, who's with us here today, who is the executive director of the Abolitionist Law Center, a law project dedicated to ending race and class-based discrimination in the criminal justice system and all forms of state violence. And he is also a lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. He is, um, yes. Thank you. He is co-founder of the Human Rights Coalition, an organization with um, chapters in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh that is composed of family members of prisoners that advocates on behalf of uh, the civil and human that advocates, sorry, excuse me, on behalf of the civil and human rights of oh, prisoners. Um, he is also a co-founder of the Coalition to Abolish Death by Incarceration in Pennsylvania. In and life without rule sentences. While incarcerated, Salim wrote extensively on prison abuse, social injustice, state violence, and juveniles charged and sentenced as adults. His writings were featured in Truth Out, The Appeal, San Francisco Bay View, and Solitary Watch. He was released from prison in 2018 after spending over two decades incarcerated for an offense he was convicted of as a child offender. Next, we have Safir Ness. Safir is a white Mexican Muslim practicing prison abolition in SEI Cole Township in Pennsylvania. Safir grew up in Philadelphia and has spent all of their adult life under various forms of carceral supervision. And although they are held captive, they have transformed their cell into a learning center and education is now their weapon of resistance. Next, we have Jessica Phoenix Sylvia, also with us here today. Um, she is a formerly incarcerated trans woman, writer, 
speaker, community organizer, abolitionist, and advocate for the humanization of trans prisoners. She is a self-described radical revolutionary, abolitionist thinker, and musical artist. Her writing and reporting characteristically ascribes to consciousness and cultural reflections that highlight self-determination, resilience, and resistance. She considers herself an abolitionist first and a writer second, preferring to write only about that which supports the work that she values with the greatest passion for writing about racist, gendered, ableist, colonial violence of the criminal legal system. She focuses her work on power over powerlessness, promoting transformative justice solutions that build community accountability. Next, we have Dr. Kim Wilson, who will be joining us via Zoom in a second. She is an educator, organizer, writer, and artist. She's also co-host and producer of Beyond Prisons, a really great podcast on incarceration and prison abolition. Kim has three adult children, a daughter, and two sons, and both of her sons are currently sentenced to life in prison. She has a PhD in urban affairs and public policy and more than two decades of teaching and facilitation experience. And her current work focuses on creating abolitionist media and teaching others how to use storytelling, research, data, and community voices in the fight for human rights. Then finally, we have Stephen Wilson, or Stevie Wilson. Um, he is a currently incarcerated black queer writer, activist, and student. For over two decades, he was active in the ballroom community and worked as an HIV prevention specialist and community organizer. His work and practice um, inherit teachings from prison abolition, transformative and racial justice, black feminist theory, and gender and queer theory and liberation. Specifically, he works to end cycles of poverty and incarceration that have plagued his community. He works to expose and dismantle the prison industrial complex and to build a world in which we deal with harm without caging or exiling other people. Okay, great. So while we wait for Stevie and Kim to join us on Zoom, perhaps we can get started um, just kind of with our first question, and then we'll loop in um, Stevie and Kim when they when they join us. Um, so one thing that I talked about with Stevie actually yesterday, and kind of in prep for this panel, was you know when we hear about censorship as an issue today, right? People often think about banning books. But I'm wondering for um, our panelists here with us today, how would you expand this idea um, and kind of what does prison censorship um, really mean to you? Yeah, if I could get started, I would say Recording that, in progress. Thank you. I would say that, uh, you know, censorship is more than just thinking about language or ideas. Uh, many things can be censored, including bodies. There are people who are kidnapped by body snatchers who are, in my eyes, human traffickers, erasing people out of communities, censoring them out of their own communities, and putting them in prison. Um, I know that as a trans woman, I've had my own body censored. I've had my healthcare censored. We can see that uh, reproductive rights are censored today. And I would think of, um, you know, there are folks who want to actually criminalize healthcare for trans kids, which I think of as almost sort of a preemptive genocide, which would erase a whole generation of individuals, collective, and generations of people who cannot exist. And so censorship can be very, you know, 
it's, it's very serious. I, I look back at the history of this country with censorship, where Native Americans couldn't actually speak their language and couldn't practice their culture, where black folks were not allowed to read or write. And so thinking about censorship and how it supports uh, the criminal legal system today and mass incarceration, um, it's very serious. And it's more than just language. It's more than just ideas. It is about bodies. It is about actions, functions through time and through space in various ways. Great, thank you so much. Um, I just want to pause briefly um, to welcome Kim and Stevie. Um, can you, you guys can hear us okay? I hope, okay, cool. Um, so just to loop um, y'all both in, um, and to leave, hopefully you can uh, jump into that question as well. Um, I just kicked us off with a question about, you know, um, what does prison censorship mean to you? Like, like most people when we think about censorship think, oh, maybe it's just banning books, but kind of what, what does it actually mean? Um, so that's the question that we're discussing, and um, if, if y'all want to jump in, go for it, or Salim, you could pop in as well. Yeah, I can, I can answer okay. some of that. Um, everything Shelby has said, I, I totally agree with, um, so I'm not going to expound too much on, on that. I think that censorship in prison serves several purposes. One is to erase prisoners, um, to erase your identity, um, also to disappear you. Um, prison is, is very adept at disappearing, not just from society or your community or your neighborhood, but even from within the prison itself. There's many layers of the hole that you could be disappeared in um, for political content, for political speech, for challenging prison, or for being different. You know, being uh, queer or trans in prison can get you disappeared, right? Because the prison system, that's not something the system wants to deal with. Um, it's inconvenient to the prison system. And so what's convenient? Disappearing people, placing people in the hole. Uh, that's the political side of it, right? If you're a prisoner that's politicized, if you were influenced by George Jackson, if you were influenced by the black prison movement, you're going to be disappeared. You're going to be censored. You're going to be contained. You're going to be isolated. Um, but then there's another side of it, the human side. Um, the self-censorship that you do to yourself. I tell people that dealing with this, the, the repression and, and prison censorship was something that was very easy for me to deal with. Going into prison at the age of 16, I had adjusted to that. That was my norm, right? Prison, cells, isolation, things like that. What wasn't the norm, what was abnormal for me was censoring a lot of the human uh, Feeling, uh, it, it's, it's, it's hard to explain, but I tell people, you know, being in prison, a part, I had to kill a part of me. And I feel like every prisoner, when you go in there, you kind of do that to yourself. You censor yourself. You, 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 you um, disappear a part of yourself because prison is not an environment where you can really have feelings about other people, right? You, you kind of dehumanize yourself. And even today, having been out of those cages, for five years after 27 years in prison, um, I still have to uh, find ways to rediscover those parts of me that I censored, those parts of me that I erased those 27 years in prison in order for me to um, survive, particularly the way I did my time, because I did my time in a very particular way. I did it on my own terms. Um, and so I, I lost a lot. And so it's always a process of recovering that. But when I think back on those 27 years, 
10 years in solitary confinement, being transferred 20-something times to different prisons across the state, being in cells with no clothes for three or four days, uh, with, with the guards pumping in cold air to my cell. I've recovered from all that. That is what it was. I dealt with it. What lingers most is the self-censorship, what I took away from myself, that I struggle to recover every day. So that's that's also just like a human side of the censorship that we all go through uh, as prisoners. So yeah. I think I wanted to uh, you know share share my thoughts on that because that doesn't stop at the door when you're released. It's something that you continue uh, carry on. And if you look at if you listen to political prisoners in other parts parts of the country, in Uruguay, South Africa, um, in Europe, who were released from prison, you'll see that many of them tell you uh, say that that's that was the most uh, brutal part of, of the prison experience, censoring themselves, right? Marilyn Buck talked about that as well. Um, Stevie or Kim, do either one of you? Yeah, Stevie, you want to go for it? Okay. Okay, try again, Stevie. You want to try talking? Can you hear me, Stevie? I can hear y'all. Okay, perfect. I'm gonna, uh, okay. I'm going to jump to go first. Okay. Hand. Um, do you mind repeating the question? I caught the tail end. For sure. Um, yeah, basically it was just kind of what does prison censorship mean to you? Um, and maybe kind of how does it go beyond just a simple sort of discussion about banned books, for example? Okay, um, wow, that's a big question, uh, and I think that uh, part of what I think about in terms of prison censorship is um, that docile bodies are easier to discipline, right? Um, making sure that people don't have access to uh, legal materials, medical information, uh, anything that has to do with race, uh, civil rights, anything, um, politics, uh, talk about the most pressing issues of our time, all of those things are being banned and have been banned uh, from prisons across the country for decades. Um, restricting that access makes it really difficult for people to self-educate, um, and that's also connected to something that um, I've been thinking about and uh, have this conversation with a few people around higher ed in prison, but also the um, decline or the complete <laughs> elimination of higher education in, uh, in prison happening around the same time as you know many of these uh, books have been banned, or many books have been banned. And it's not just limited to books. I'm focusing on books in part because, you know, September, um, the end of September, we always talk about banned books uh, week, or many of us observe uh, banned books week. And uh, we don't tend to talk about it in the context of prisons. Uh, we don't tend to think about banned books in the context of, you know, prisoner rights and what the implications of, are, of that are beyond just the kind of like, oh, well, so-and-so couldn't get this book, that this is really a systemic um, problem that we're seeing across the country 
The rules are arbitrary and nonsensical. They vary from state to state. They vary between the federal prisons and state prisons. It varies also between state prisons and jails. The decisions are being left up to individuals either in the mailroom or other prison officials who are, I would argue, ill-equipped at best to make decisions about what prisoners should have access to. And I was refreshing my memory in reading a piece in preparation for today's panel around the idea of censorship in books in American prisons and how this is such an under-discussed problem, under-discussed problem across the board. And it's not something that I'm grateful to be part of this panel and on this panel with these amazing folks. This is probably the first panel that I've been on that has actually focused on censorship in prison. And that's very telling considering that we talk about prisons so much. It may appear and may show up as a topic or a subset within somebody else's presentation. But I believe in all of my years of organizing, this is the very first panel that I've been on that has focused on censorship in prison. And it's not, like I said earlier, not just limited to books. I think it's really important for us to recognize, as Selene pointed out, how this destroys individuals, but also how it destroys ties between people and their communities. And hopefully we can get a little deeper into that. I could go on and on about this, but I'd love to hear what Stevie has to say. Thank you. I want to tell you that, can you hear me? First, I want to say thank you for being a part of the panel once again. I agree with what you just said about prison censorship being... Stevie, I think you're a little bit quiet, so if you could just project as much as possible, that'd be great. Can you hear me now? Yeah, that's better. Thanks. Okay. I just want to say I want to reiterate what someone was talking about. Prison censorship not being a topic that we talk about quite often. We need to talk more about it. People talk about prison. They talk about what's happening. It's a question of prison, but they're not talking about censorship. And to me, censorship is actually the denial of our connection. And at the end of the day, it's about the means, about the fact that I cannot be in a relationship or connect to people outside. I cannot be in a relationship or connect to people inside. 
And that's a very interesting question, right? And then other, uh, you know, I've seen mostly, uh, you know, black feminist material being rejected more than anything else. So really, in my eyes, I, I think that what I'm seeing in terms of wanting to support penological objectives are, ends up being like a collateral consequence of a, a, a ban on black feminism, right? And, uh, and then, of course, I'm seeing that it's very random. Sometimes you get like say Simone de Beauvoir. I remember she was banned in Washington State Prison for pornographer, right? Why? Because the title is the Second Sex, you know, right? Wanting to study philosophy, wanting to study Judith Butler and Simone de Beauvoir, but I've still got Judith Butler. So I can only understand half of what she But yeah, so um, and, and then there's the the other idea that. We can get farther down what's happening, who's actually banning the material, and, and then what's actually happening, say, uh, you know, what the policies are, but then what's actually happening, and we get into these other, you know, which I'll probably speak on later, is the, the exhaustion loop, right? It sort of happens in non distribution, so that, you know, even when folks are told that they have to give us the material, does it actually get there? So it, it was my experience that any reading material that promoted self-agency um, or self-expression or any time you as a prisoner divided, decided to define yourself, that's more likely than, that's more likely when your material was censored, right? Um, one, it had several reasons. One, the, the system, for one, does not want prisoners defining themselves, right? Um, I, I remember vividly them being very clear to us that like you're a murderer, you're a robber. Actually, you're not even that. You're just BL5140. That's your number. You're here to just process with the system. Once we took that power back and said, actually, I'm not a number, and you start defining yourself, that's when you're going to be uh, targeted. That's when your 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 political material is going to be censored. Your person is going to be censored. Um, a lot of my writings in prison, um, really, it was almost comical that for years I wrote for different publications, and those publications would be banned in the prison I was in. Was in. And they would tell me, like, it's contraband, you can't have this magazine because this article that you wrote is in it. And I would be like, well, I have the draft in myself. <laughs> they want that too. Or, you know, you know, it's funny, but it, it was, it's just really ridiculous because they would say, like, well, this is advocating the threat to the government, it's promoting violence, and then, you know, I'll send them the article that I wrote and say, where in that page do you see that? It, it never was about it being threatening, about it promoting or advocating insurrection or violence or one of the cat's terms that they use. It was just basically to quote them, motherfucker, how dare you like have something to say that we didn't sanction um, in opposition to us, right? And then it's it's on the wit and whims of anyone. This is like really one of the most ridiculous things because in, in all the years of different prisons I've been in, you have a mailroom supervisor, and you know we filed a lawsuit when I was still on the inside. I actually drafted it and it was the abolitionist law center's second lawsuit that we took, and we won the the lawsuit it was about prison censorship. But one of the th 
things that we learned from the depositions of the railroad supervisors, these are not really incredibly bright people. Um, and they, yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm serious. Um, it really makes me think of the banality of evil term that you hear a lot, how like, the person that was censoring all of my writings and just like really disappearing me, making sure other prisoners did not have anything that dealt with like black history, anything that was a book of like Joy James, a new abolitionist, anything about slave revolts was just being denied. It was like a 60 year old grandmother who was like a very gentle, pleasant person in the, in the deposition, right? But her mindset was just, these people broke the law. Um, you know, they, they don't have the right to cr criticize the state. They don't have the right to define themselves. They don't have the right to read stuff that criticizes America, right? And and that's that's one of the amazing things. But then you could go to a prison like SCI Green, where I was at, where the mailroom supervisor was someone that was like a former. Uh, uh, Marine reservists and army, so he was very in the military. So he was very clear cut um, that you know we're keeping material out of here. That these prisoners are going to cause an insurrection. They're going to try and escape. They're going to mobilize in the yard. They're following around uh, Russell Maroon Schultz, a political prisoner member of the Black Liberation Army. They're organizing to take the prison over, which really was just a bunch of nonsense. But he was trained to, to see us as that. Right? And this is what the prison system does. It's really amazing how they just take these people and they just process them in this system, right? In a sense, they just become clogs in the machine, too. Um, we won that lawsuit, though, and, and I think that was a, a lesson, though, because we had to do that ourselves, right? Wasn't, you know, I'm not going to name a lot of groups out there, um, but they just weren't really interested in taking on prison censorship as a battle with the Department of Corrections. I think. The reason why we won that case, Holbrook v. Jelen, and it did open up some breathing space because I'm going to tell you that as long as there's prisons, there's going to be censorship, right? As an abolitionist, I don't believe that litigation is going to bring about the end of prisons. The only thing that's going to bring about the end of prisons, policing, and the social contract that has governed the United States and these repressive institutions is social upheaval, right? But the whole purpose of litigation when I was on the inside against censorship was to give us breathing space so that we can organize inside because this literature that we were getting these books this was a, our ability to have political education political classes right um, and so we were able to win some breathing space but you know in America rights that you have are only rights that you can keep and hold so as Stevie's case is, is, is he's going through right now the prison is going to censor you Regardless whether you beat them in court, they're going to uh, continue to to try and extinguish that light from coming into the prison system. Um, one of the ironies about the Holbrook v. Jelen case that I like to tell people about is that when we won the case, we were able to settle the case right before I came home. And um, one of the good things that came about that case was people on the outside can now challenge censorship by the Department of Corrections, but a lot of people don't know about it, right? But book authors, uh, publishers, they can challenge if their book is censored, in addition to people on the inside as well as their family.
but it's just that people don't really have this amount of information. But uh, also in winning that case and the settlement, um, one of the ironies is that all that labor the Department of Corrections put in censoring my writings, the Human Rights Coalition's writings, the money that we got from the censorship, we actually used to pay my salary the first year at the abolitionist law center when I came home, right? So I always find that as a way of us like expropriating uh, resources from the state in order for us to build up the formations that we need to continue to push back. But I, I want to be clear that regardless of how, how, many, how many cases we bring against prisons, the prisons are going to continue to censor reading material. They're going to continue to censor and disappear prisoners because that's the purpose of prisons, right? And abolitionists, we shouldn't lose focus of this, but our challenges to censorship, our advocacy, our organizing against it, around it, under it, is all to create a breathing space so our people on the inside, so that they can mobilize, they can organize, more importantly, they can define themselves, discover themselves, discover their politics, and discover the principles that they want to live by and the society they want to live by out here, but also in there, because I like to tell people that we also have a society in there, right? We didn't allow the prison system just to have us processing through the system as numbers. We created our own society values within that system that tried to suppress that um, and, and take us out of civic engagement. Um, I want to say thank you, first of all, to uh, the lead office for that work. Um, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yes, okay. The lead office in Pennsylvania locked for a very long time, um, and uh, his work and effort and energy put into that actually opened the door for somebody giving us some reason. So I thank you very much for that work that you did and continue to do. Um, and, and as the police said, you know, 
about organizing, it's about connecting, it's about relating to each other, it's about feeling, typically growing into informing, and they really don't want that to happen. Our lessons cannot go forward without the material. The material is here, material is on organizing. And the thing is that, that they know that we need these things. They know we need these things, and so they make it very hard. But we find innovative ways to get around them. The thing is that this is why I'm saying on the outside, as an outside ally, what we can do to pressure on the people that we can actually target and say, look, this is the problem. This person is the problem. This person is the problem. I read also recently, I'm going to say, I read recently that half of the book challenge that's going on this last, this last year, 2021, have actually come from state officials or elected officials. And so I want to say it's not, it's not even just now, it's not about the school board or just the library. We see that the officials
because of the censorship we were going through in prison, we were not able to organize together. We weren't able to congregate together for political education. A lot of us were in solitary confinement or in other prisons, and we put this course, a correspondence course together that was able to serve prisoners all across the state and get around the censorship. But like I said, they're always going to come back. We had to fight, and Stevie's continuous fight. But I'm really glad that you were able to, you know, take that. But also, that's we talk a lot about prison censorship, but we should definitely uplift when, when, when prisoners we get around it, right? And, and and that was a way of us getting around it. That was a way of us beating it. That was a way of us politicizing not just each other. But our outside supporters, you know, it was, a, it was about relationship building all across the country. And actually, you know, that was something that was really more local to Pennsylvania. And I see what Stevie and Charlotte are doing now with study and struggle is national. So it's really just great to see it, you know, explode larger. Whereas something like that we set up close to 13, 14 years ago, man, it was like 2010 was really when we were at SCI Green, a supermax prison, and prisoner that were literally 100 yards from me, I could never see because that's how the prison was set up, that we couldn't interact with one each other, but we had to figure out a way that we could politically educate each other, correspond with each other, and dialogue with each other. We had to actually go to people on the outside and have that material sent back in to the prisoners. Yeah, I want to, um, Kim, I want to give you a chance to speak, but also just noting that we have like 10 minutes left on the Zoom. So maybe, Kim, you want to jump in and then also then we'll go to Stevie next. But if both of you want to maybe um, talk a little bit about kind of like what folks can do, like some strategies or methods of kind of responding and resisting and supporting people inside who are dealing with censorship, um, that would be great. And then we'll, we'll bring it back to Jess and Slim. I just want to make sure that we don't get cut off. <laughs> um, so yeah, Kim, uh, take it away. Um, so I just wanted to add on to what was already said in terms of, um, you know, the, the censorship that's been happening. And I think the one important thing is to recognize that we live in a fashion police state, um, that prisons are not disconnected from what is happening out here. And when we think of prisons as a separate place out there somewhere where we just put people away, that becomes part of the problem, right? Um, I was in a prison recently. <laughs> where they have literally redecorated decorated, um, the entire prison in the colors of the thin blue line flag. For people who don't know walking into that prison, they don't know. For the rest of us, we're terrified, right? Because that's a signal right there as to who, is, who matters in that, in that setting, right? So when books are banned, when materials, any kind of materials are banned, um, and what Stevie has been describing about his own particular situation, what Liam's been describing about what he went through and so on and so forth, um, they target individuals because the point is to keep you distracted, right? <laughs> the point is that, you know, you can't challenge the entire list of books. Texas, for example, has 12,000 books on their list that are banned. You have to challenge every single one of those books, right? It's also not about content, right? Because I, I want to kind of dispel this myth that it's only about content. 
I have sent books to people on the inside that are blank journals or journals that they can, you know, they have like little prompts. Those are banned. Those are banned, right? So it's not just about content. And, and that's part of the fallacy, that there are a lot of myths, I think, about what materials get in, what materials don't get in. Um, the other thing I wanted to say real quick, and I know, you know, very short on time, I don't know if there's a way for me to call back in uh, for the remainder of the session, uh, Charlotte, but you can text me, let me know, um, is that um, this notion that this is about security is also a fallacy. This is not about security. Security is a pretext that they use to continue to ban books, right, and other materials. That somehow these materials are a threat. That you know, a child's drawing because it's done with crayons or something, and you know, I don't know. People are in their homes melting K2 into you know a, a children's book page or something, and that's getting into. This is nonsense. This is nonsense. Like, this is not how drugs are entering prison, contraband is entering prison, and so on and so forth. We, we've talked about that um, in other in other contexts. I could go on. I want to give Stevie time because I know, you know, again, I should. And if there's another way for me to join back in, even if it's just audio, let me know. Sure. I just want to say, uh, I, I, I don't know if you're on time, that I really want, um, as it is,
access is not just access to, to text, but it's also, you know, for other um, other folks. If you are blind, um, you know, you're banned. Uh, there are books that can't get in. Um, the push to have, you know, in a lot of states, you can only purchase books through certain, you know, bona fide vendors, whatever the hell that means, right? We all know what that is. Um, really makes it very difficult for a lot of people to get the kinds of books that they want into the prison, but also their size restrictions on books. Um, you can't send hardbacks, you can't, like the, the list goes on and on and on. And it's really hard to keep up because what's banned one week may not be banned the next week and then on and on down the line. So it's the arbitrariness of it all. Um, you know, that, is, that is also part of the problem. Um, obviously, I could go on and on and on, but I'll leave it there. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Kim. I'm going to see if we can try to um, get you in another way, but we're going to transition to showing a video, if that's cool. But thank you so much. Oh, and, uh, I thought that was going to happen soon. Um, but anyway, um, okay, so give us one second. We're going to uh, get the video up of Saphir and Brian. Um, oh, okay, actually. All incoming and outgoing information has to pass through DOC or Department of Corrections gateways, right? And that means every single transfer of information is highly regulated and has to meet stringent standards. They, they just make it difficult. That's the point. They make it difficult to receive information in every way possible. I can give you an example. If we want to receive books from the outside world, we are able to receive books, but you as an individual cannot send me a book. You have to go through the store or through the publisher. Then when this book gets sent in, it doesn't come straight to me at the prison. It has to go through a security processing center, which is designed to you know, look through the book materially, but then they also have a committee called the Incoming Publication Review Committee, the IPRC. And this committee is specifically structured to either let books in or deny and censor books, right? So once that happens, once it goes through the security processing center, and then once it's approved by the IPRC, then it will get transferred to the prison on that. And then hopefully I will receive that book. And that's just one example of the many ways that all of these things that all transfers of information are just highly surveilled and all with the intent to be censored. So I'll just leave it at that. Uh, most recently, um, I had a publication from the San Francisco Bay View, um, volume 47, issue number three. And allegedly, it was due to pages 13 through 14, and they wrote out section B, 3B, and D, which contains, listen to this, revolutionary advocacy. Um, what was the other one? It said uh, revolutionary advocacy and uh, uh, unauthorized organ organizing. And um, I basically filed my agreements and I stated that uh, that is protected under Article 1, 
section 7, 9, and 26 of the Pennsylvania Constitution, coupled with the First and Fourteenth Amendment rights of the United States Constitution. And the First Amendment is the bedrock principle that the speech may not be suppressed simply because it expresses ideas that are offensive or disagreeable. Speech may not be banned on the ground that it expresses ideas that offend. For this reason, I'm requesting for your office to overturn IPRC's arbitrary and unconstitutional decision and provide me with the above-mentioned newspaper. So I went through the appellate stages and then um, the superintendent is the facility manager, first level appeal, he denied it. And then I went to central office and they gave me what they call a grievance referral. Grievance referral and they basically says in here that they needed more time so they sent it to the Office of Policy Grants and Legislative Affairs. The referral date was 5-26-2022. So, last week sometime, I was out doing some phone calls and the officer called me to the desk and said, hey, you have a Bayview and it is the March edition that they denied me based on the pages uh, 13 and 14, where they talked about that it allegedly had something revolutionary and uh, unauthorized group activity. So I went there and I was curious to see what was all the fuss about. And when I went, of course, me as curious George Garrett, <laughs> on this page here, where my finger is at, can you see it? Yep, know your rights. It says, right, there you go. They don't want you to know that. <laughs> That's what the denial was all about. Um, the materials most likely to be censored are liberation-based materials, especially black liberation type of materials. That's like public enemy number one. Um, materials criticizing the prison or police. Materials um, that are authored by incarcerated people or formerly incarcerated people are also likely, especially prominent authors like George Jackson, all of his books are banned in PA prisons. Um, you know, even like historical mentions of prison uprisings and organizing, something you might see on the History Channel, even those books are censored and banned at prison. Um, there's another thing I think a lot of people on the outside don't know is that photos are censored too, meaning photos that family, friends, and comrades send in are often censored. I remember years ago, I received this photo. Um, it was a group of white kids. Uh, they were in a group shot. Um, and some people I know, and somebody threw up the peace sign in this photo. And I got the photo. It's no problem. I got the photo. So just recently, uh, a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine, sent me a photo. And from what he explains to me, because I never actually got the photo, is that it was a group shot. It was after a business dinner. They're like all dressed in suits and somebody threw up the peace sign. But I didn't get this photo. This photo was censored. And the only difference between the two photos is that the first photo was all white kids. And then the second photo, they were black. 
So when the white kid threw out the peace sign, it was cool. But when the black guy threw out the peace sign, I got the notice of confiscation that said this was security threat group slash gang related material. Right. Can you, so like if, if for the audience, can you kind of describe prior to that change two or three years ago? So like when you used to get a book or mail, can you describe what it looked like before the process? And then well, just, to, just to get, for example, um, Carol Seligman from the socialist viewpoint, she's always sent me some beautiful, uh, cards. Uh, there would be, uh, it would be a card with something that she typed and, and, and attached to the card inside. And then outwardly it would be like a picture of a, a blue heron. You know, something that I don't normally see that she actually got to see, take a picture of and send. Um, there was um, uh, pictures, uh, uh, little um, arts, pieces of art or drawings that uh, my daughter would send me. Uh, uh, basically, all of that now is, you know, if you do send it, it gets photographs and it loses its personal uh, human touch to it. Um, before there was even a time where you can have them spray some sort of perfume to make the, co the connection, you know, uh, more personable. Um, and it's just all of that is gone, even the pictures, the actual pictures. So the pictures that I do have, uh, I have those as relics. There's been a lot of the cards that I do have, some I held on to, some I have sent home because I don't want to have those lost or destroyed. If in fact, you know, one day unbeknownst to me, like it happened to me over there that, you know, they picked me up and put me in a hole under investigation for whatever reason, uh, just in that transaction right there alone, your stuff will end up missing. How does censorship affect your relationships? Mm. <clears throat> I mean, to keep it a hundred with you, um, because of censorship, I am no longer able to have a completely authentic relationship with anybody in the free world. I mean, there is always a barrier preventing me from being able to completely express myself. Even in this conversation about censorship, I have to be mindful to censor my own self, right? Because if I don't and I say something that does not fit the criteria of what they want me to say, then it's possible that I could receive punishment as a result of that, even in this conversation right here. And likewise, people in the free world, you yourself know this, that when you're talking to an incarcerated person, you have to be mindful of what you're saying because you don't want to say the wrong thing that could get us in trouble, right? So there's always somebody listening and waiting for us to say the wrong thing, and they use this surveillance as a radar for censorship. And like I said, in prison, censorship is meted out with punishment, like going to the hole. I mean, um, truly, there's a comrade that uh, I became very close to over the past couple of years. And, you know, we were building through all these methods, 
that are highly surveillance censored. They're talking on the phone and messaging. And we got close. And then about a year ago, they came up to visit me in person for the first time. So in this type of visit, there is no more censorship, right? There, there is that ability to have a real genuine um, interaction. And all of the things that I couldn't say before, I mean, just imagine that, that you can have nobody to really connect with. You can't tell anybody your secrets. You can't tell anybody your true inner feelings. You know, you can't talk about your organizing work in detail. You can't talk about any of these things. And then finally, I was able to do that. And honestly, it was so deep that like it really brought tears to my eyes in the midst of this conversation. And they felt the same way, you know, after all this time of finally, you know, we can talk and we can connect. So with censorship, you can't be your true self. Um, I always go back to that that one thing that the psychologist taught me at Greaterford. Um, he said that, you know, if if you fail to learn, to read, to write, to understand the English language, you will forever be enslaved. And the sad part about it is enslaved to imprisonment, to a system that does not want to educate you and refrains from doing so, and also denies you access to the benefit of what an education would do for you. So in essence, that is, a, I guess, the, the most gross way that I can put it to unconstitutionally violate a person's right is to deprive you of that education, because education means breaking the bars and the chains of your mind and transcending and rising above being imprisoned. So imprisonment is not steel, concrete, barbed wires. Those are the physical elements of what we call prison, but prison is here. It's mental, psychological. I mean, censorship really, I even go into the whole, certainly based on censorship. There was a time uh, during the beginning of the pandemic, actually, when my friend Stevie went to the hole. And when he went to the hole, it was a, a very oppressive and unjust situation. So I decided I wanted to write about it. And I wrote a small message to just three of my comrades explaining what happened to Stevie, explaining the conditions that we were under. And I sent it out to them and hoped that they would post it on social media. Two days later, they called me down to security, locked me up and put me right in the hole. And they gave me 60 days for inciting a petition. Right. That's pure censorship right there. Um, so what are, you know, I feel like people sometimes get wind of censorship and then just feel outraged. But what, what are some things that people outside can do to fight censorship? Well, I mean, I always encourage people that, you know, the, the, the phone that you guys have uh, is basically the world uh, in, a, in, in, in that phone. So uh, to collectively and individually um, call, uh, perfect example, when I was retaliated against, you know, for expressing my First Amendment and telling them to put it on YouTube, uh, 
Um, there was uh, over 2,000 calls made to central office as a result of them retaliating against me uh, for, censor for censoring uh, me and my conversation and my GTL messages to uh, attorneys, um, uh, advocates, uh, uh, reporters like Joe, uh, Carol, uh, Betsy, uh, yourself, um, Ted, uh, uh, numerous people. And uh, therefore, they found that offensive. Nonetheless, it took them 11 days to consider whether they were going to execute it, but they did, and then they put me in a hole, and I was retaliated against. So therefore, they, uh, you know, and by me being uh, under that particular status, I had access to one phone call, I think every, like, every two or three days. And in those phone calls, I told Joe, I said, well, there has to be some sort of... Um, report placed in the newspaper. So using the newspapers, using the emails, using the websites, and also uh, individually uh, and collectively notifying the taxpaying citizen that, hey, you can make a difference. Don't think for one minute just because you don't see the results and the repercussions of that phone call, uh, they don't like that. They don't want to be uh, tsunamied or overwhelmed by thousands of people calling up about one person. You know, so it, it, it does make a difference. And nine days later, they kicked me out of Frackville as a result. <laughs> so, you know, thank Joe, thank Workers World, and thank all the people that actually called in, which I thank them, because I don't know half of all those people or who they were but nonetheless they cared they cared enough and I definitely appreciated that and was heartfelt and moved by that uh, so much so that when uh, the one officer escorted me to the shower he said hey uh, Mr. Roy I got some great news for you and I was like uh, what? Um, I said are, are they releasing me? He's like no you're out of here tomorrow so I was like woo <laughs> he's like too many calls that's all I'm going to say. Too many calls. Great. Um, so, yeah, I know we only have a little bit of time left, um, but I just was wondering, Salim and Jess, if um, you both could maybe sort of reflect on what you heard a little bit in the video, um, or maybe even if you want, pick up a little bit on the question before, sort of about like what folks can do around prison censorship or anything else? Um, yeah. Well, I think it comes down to the fact that everything I heard supports the idea that prison is dehumanizing and it's meant to be dehumanizing. And when people take steps to humanize themselves and each other, there is going to be someone there to try to stop that from happening. And prison is slavery in so many ways, whether you're talking about uh, unpaid prison labor, or just the different number of ways that uh, those things show up. I know that as a trans person, I've had my health care censored. I know that I've been retaliated against and thrown in the hole for inciting group demonstrations. I know that one of the things that's happened to me is because I've written so much in support of the humanization of trans people, I've had Turks and carceral feminists publish some really nasty shit about me, half of which is completely lies saying shit like I'm a pedophile and that my mother has a restraining order against me. And people read that and they think it's true because it's published. And it's just shit that happens to me because I stand up 
They want to see trans folks and prisoners humanized. Um, you know, when, when I talk about like what can actually be done, yeah, phones apps can be great. Um, one of the things that we don't want to see is for a prisoner to be isolated. When prisoners are isolated, these these animals that want to torture people can get away with it. The most effective thing there is is to make sure that a person is not isolated, to make sure that we're there to find out what's happening, what can we do to support you. Phones apps can be effective, but I'm going to tell you right now, there's this thing called the exhaustion loop. You can have all the policies in the world. However, what they'll do is somewhere along the line, if you make it through all the hoops, someone will just say, oops, just like what happened in my last book. And you said, give her the book. Well, guess what? We don't know what happened to your book. You can file a complaint if you want. So basically, these people have all the power. And when it comes down to it, the only solution, besides helping people survive living in a cage for now, yes, showing up for them in various ways, is prison abolition. That's it. That's the only solution. Because they have all the power when it comes down to it. And we're just trying to survive this, but prison abolition. And that's my final word. And if you'd like to keep up with my work, you can see uh, during Band Books Week, I'll have an interview with Pan America on their website. I'll also be contributing an article. If you'd like to check me out, you can find me on Instagram at Jessica Phoenix Sylvia. Thank you.
free people on the way to that horizon, right? And, and that's the only way we're going to get to abolition. You know, Harriet Tubman did it when she was, you know, liberating people from plantations, following the North Star, didn't pass by other plantations and say, all right, y'all, you know, I'll see you on the other side of the horizon. She got them out of those plantations on the way to that horizon. And that's something that as abolitionists we should work to. And then last, and this is very important, that abolition is not about abolishing prisons and police. That's one part of abolition. At the end of the day, if you're an abolitionist, you're going to have to face the fact that in order for us to live in a society where there's no more police and no more prisons, we're going to have to start talking about abolishing the social contract that has governed the United States. At the end of the day, that's what this is about. Um, and so that's something really important because then you're looking beyond the prison and the policing. Capitalism would like us just to believe that that's the problem, prisons and policing, that mass incarceration, over-policing, and racist prosecution are anomalies within American society. They're not the part and parcel of it. They're extensions of it. So at the end of the day, look beyond abolishing um, prisons and police. And I don't know, I've just got a smile on my face. I'm going to put you on the spot, Andrew. Andrew just rolled in here, who is, you know, one of our mentors in the abolitionist spaces. And just I'm glad to see you. Sorry. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you know, that's something that's really important for us to remember and to stay focused on. Capitalism will do away with prisons and policing if it's going to extend itself, right? They, they will find other ways to control human beings. Um, so that's very important for us to understand. Thank you for having me. Um, I just want to say thank you so much to all of you for being here today. Huge thanks um, to Jess, Salim, Kim, Sapir, Stevie, and Brian. Um, and thank you, Haymarket, um, for inviting us to have this panel. So thanks, everyone. Enjoy the rest of the conference. We'll be hanging out up here if you want to chat. But thanks so much. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.